The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be with everyone this morning here in Minneapolis and all of you around. We have a few people in the building. For those of you who live in the area, remember. You're welcome to come to the center at 10.30 on Sundays, a little bit before, and sit with others. Uh, the people in the building are watching the program on a big screen in the meditation hall, and then you can do the small group check-in in person instead of in the Zoom groups. And if you're new, we generally, um, at the end of the program at 11.45, uh, here Central Time, then either Sharon or Shannon Gibney or Nancy Bowler help organize small discussion groups for about 15 to 20 minutes for the community that can stay and are interested in meeting in groups of three. And these last couple of weeks, maybe for one more week, we're, we're looking at the Buddhist teachings on wise effort. And this is a really central topic, and I think I maybe mentioned this last week, but you know, different uh, in the sort of Buddhist cosmology. There are many Buddhas, people who teach these teachings. And this particular Buddha that we've been listening to these last 2,500 years, this human being, his given his temperament and his strengths, he's considered to be, uh, you know, somebody who really relied on skillful effort to support the awakening. And... Uh, we tend to interpret that, you know, idea of making skillful effort, even if we put that word skillful in front of it, we tend to equate efforting with this sort of muscular kind of effort. So instead of saying right effort, I usually use the word wise, a discerning effort, an effort that actually helps <laughs> lead us in the direction that the heart seeks to go. And I don't know about your heart, but my heart seeks the direction of release, not the direction of contraction, weightfulness, feeling burdened by life. Initially, we wrongly think that in order to feel release, I need to fix the world, fix my partner, fix my community, fix my body, fix my personality, and in the Buddhist tradition, it's like getting tired of stepping on sharp stones and deciding to cover the entire earth with a nice carpet. So no more sharp stones. That would be a lot of effort and completely undoable, as opposed to building a really good pair of shoes. And then the sharp stones aren't such a problem. And so that's the, you know, the simile for doing our practice wisely. We're making a very particular effort, not the unworkable effort to fix everything so that somehow, oh, now I can relax. Now I can be at ease. Now I can be kind. Now I can be intimate because the world is just the way I like it. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, we've cumulatively, like if we added up all of us here listening, you know, all the little and big ways we try to fix the world, 
fix each other, fix ourselves, endless. And what has all of that so-called wrong or unhelpful effort in, you know, what wisdom can we distill from all that unhelpful efforting? You know, this is not the way. This is not the way. So the effort we make is very real, and it's in moments a very muscular, intense, fierce kind of efforting. But it really relies, this is a path of understanding or wisdom. So that means the effort we make that's going to be skillful is always going to be always requiring this wisdom. And like it or not, when we begin our practice, the wisdom element isn't that strong. <laughs> but doesn't mean we don't use the wisdom element because it's still somewhat feeble. You know, we borrow some wisdom and sometimes we borrow wisdom from folks we shouldn't be borrowing wisdom from, but uh, we do our best. And it's okay because we'll learn along the way. I think I left us last week with the question, you know, for the small group discussions and just generally as a homework reflection, you know, to discern, to figure out in our own experience what kind of effort is required? And you could check right now. What kind of effort for me is required to recognize right now the present moment or to recognize that the present moment is here and now being known, being felt. See, the habit, the very deep habit of the mind is to be, in a sense, unaware of the present moment, not aware, not recognizing, oh, this is a, a moment of experience being known, being felt. And we, we don't realize how much wisdom it takes to recognize the present moment. See, we we have this very strong, ignorant idea, oh, I know the present moment, but we don't actually, in a sense, open and recognize the present moment. Because when we do, it's, it's a little surprising. It's just something being known. You could say that recognizing the present moment is always surprising. Because it's, always more simple and profound than we would ever conceive it to be. Even though it's not somehow, you know, what we think the present moment is, I guess has some relationship to the present moment, but it's not the present moment. Because being, you know, when we say being with the present moment, being aware of the present moment, it really is that without needing these words in your mind, this is being known, this is being felt. It's just, and, and that's really important, it's like this is being known is complete in the sense of it's inclusive of the reality of the present moment, it's an experience being known. And so this is really the first effort, and like I mentioned, it takes a lot of practice, because the wise in the wise effort isn't so wise. So we have a lot of missteps, a lot of misses. 
and uh, there's an interesting interaction with uh, a student at the time of the Buddha who was um, a musician. His name was Sona. And uh, he was doing his walking practice, making a lot of effort, but not necessarily wise effort. And he had, you know, blistered his feet and then there were open sores in his feet because he just kept doing his walking meditation practice and the Buddha shows up and says something, Dear Sona, isn't it true that before you became a monk practicing, you were, uh, you know, you played, you were a musician and played this stringed instrument, that I think it was called the Veena. And Sona, you know, acknowledged, yep, that, that's true. And so the Buddhists gave him the simile. Well, what was it like when the strings were too tight? And he said, well, it didn't sound good at all. You know, and sometimes they would snap if they were too tight. And then the Buddha said, well, how did it work when the strings were too loose? And Sona said, well, it didn't work good at all. You know, it sounded lousy. And then, uh, you know, the Buddha sort of says, yeah, just so, just so. When you're practicing, you want to, like we find skillful effort by really getting clear about when we're holding back, when we're expecting things to unfold, awakening, releasing, learning to unfold naturally, you know, we have these ideas that I just, you know, I just go along with the flow and I'll become a wise human being. No, going along with the flow, what we might call, you know, laziness or the absence of the application of our mind to the task of awakening, that just leads to me doing the doing what I've done before and getting the results I've, I've gotten before. But on the other hand, if in this sort of personal way I, I think I'm going to do it, I'm done with being an ignorant, unskillful, stressed out human being. I'm going to fix this matter once and for all. I'm going to take these teachings, I'm going to apply myself. Well, that also leads to stress and, you know, any kind of striving, any kind of application of a self-centered view. You know, in spiritual life, the ends need to line up with the means. So the means in the sense of how we're practicing have to be in alignment with where we're attempting to go. And in Buddhist practice, we're attempting to go in the direction of a wisdom that understands deeply the way it is. So it's always that chicken and egg. So that means the means has to be applying whatever that wisdom we have, we apply it to the way we make effort. In a way, you could say that is part of wise effort, is bringing whatever wisdom we have, whether it's our own direct wisdom, learn from our experience or borrowed wisdom that we've acquired from being inspired by some words from the Buddha or from a teacher that makes sense to us but isn't really based on our direct experience yet. We take that wisdom, as imperfect as it might be, and we use it to guide how we make effort, the kind of effort we make, what direction we're aiming for. And um, 
what we get from our elders, from the women, the men, the folks before us, all the way back to the Buddha, is effort is in the direction of this balanced, stable, non-judging present moment awareness. And the nice thing about that is, just on an intellectual level, it makes sense. You know, I have a human life. Makes sense I'd want to be clearly, groundedly connected with the way it is. It sort of has an elegance that the resolution of my bound-up heart, my fearful, greedy, in-denial, tight heart, is to learn how to more and more and more be in alignment, be connected, and to sustain that intimacy, that clear, clearly comprehending, not in a cognitive sense, clearly uh, comprehending the way it is. That just makes so much sense. So then, even on that superficial level, relatively superficial level, I can have a lot of borrowed faith. I'm going to check this out. Does this stability of present moment awareness lead in a direction that I can directly experience seems the right way, seems wholesome, seems in the direction of peace and ease and skillfulness and resilience and kindness. This is something we can actually test out for us and not only can, but really need to check out for ourselves so that our faith goes initially from being borrowed to being direct. It really is arising directly from our, what we've learned. When I'm disconnected, when I'm not aware, when I'm lost in my thoughts and my conceptions, pushed around by likes and dislikes and mental proliferation, how does that work for me? Not so well if I look, if I check in. When I have some continuity of present moment awareness to a greater and greater degree, how does that work for me? How is my heart when it's like that? More at ease, more space, more nimbleness and resilience, more capacity to contribute healing as opposed to to contribute more harm and suffering in the world? In, the, in an ancient Buddhist text, it says that wisdom is perfected by the arousing of energy. Right? So that, that's good. Like when we have a deepening of understanding, there is this natural arousing. Let, you know, sort of let me do something about what I'm coming to understand. And it's this engine. Some of you know about this engine of awakening in the Buddhist tradition called the factors, or I'm sorry, the faculties, the five faculties. It's one that's used a lot in early Buddhism. And it's not just a linear progression from faith to effort to mindfulness to the stability of awareness, concentration or samadhi to wisdom, but it's also circular. 
you know, when we have some confidence, some faith that it matters, then we make some effort. And to whatever degree there's some wisdom, we're going to make effort to be present. Because part of the initial faith that we have on the path is I don't know what's going on, right? So that's, you know, we may think, well, that's not very useful, but that actually is very useful to have confidence that I don't yet know what's going on is really useful. That's a kind of wisdom, that humility. And then I have faith in that wisdom. Yeah. My life has taught me that I don't know what's up and what's down. I don't really know how to be happy yet. I don't know how to contribute to happiness around me. So I'll make the effort to be more awake and I'll stabilize that wakefulness and I'll learn a thing or two. And I'll have even more faith and confidence in what I, what my experience is coming to show me. And I'll, I'll be inspired to make more effort, more continuous effort, applying myself to what I'm coming to understand, faintly initially. And we keep feeding, you know, the inspiration of faith gets channeled into this application of mind that's all about supporting the stability of present moment awareness. That's actually how effort is defined. Making the exertions that stabilize present moment awareness. And it's talked about in terms of preventing qualities of mind that will interrupt the stability, the present moment awareness, abandoning the unhelpful qualities of mind that are already interrupting or disturbing the continuity of awareness, developing the wholesome qualities of mind that will help stabilize present moment awareness, and maintaining those wholesome qualities that are already there. And you probably know, early Buddhism is very systematic, so you can remember this is just a more specific way that effort, persistence, exertion is talked about in early Buddhism, making the effort to prevent and abandon unwholesome qualities of mind that aren't really serving the purpose of waking up, of seeing more clearly, and developing and maintaining the wholesome qualities of mind that are supporting. So, you know, thinking that some nice sense experience is going to make a real difference. You know, all I need is a good TV show. You know, so that desiring, that attachment to, to the desire for a sense pleasure, it's not saying that that sense experience is bad. It's just saying that it's the desiring is based on a lie, that having that nice experience of watching an interesting show isn't going to make a big difference. And the desiring it, the needing it, is stressful. And it causes the mind to miss the point, which is there is something that actually helps. Developing and sustaining mindful awareness. Now, initially, it's totally okay to roll your eyes at that. It's like, you know, and especially these days, 
I mean, imagine if we all wrote into the chat, you know, the the ten ways that we're inspired to take care of ourselves. You know, there's like so many different therapeutic modalities, body modalities, healing modalities, supplements, you know, healing vacations. Yeah, even like the one that's kind of been popular lately is exposing the body to extreme cold temperatures. Have you heard of that? And it, I can imagine it's like a sauna, you know, it's sort of toning to play with extremes. So if you can do that with heat, it probably has some benefit. Who knows? I'm not promoting it. I'm just saying there are endless number of things that distract us. And it's not that there isn't some benefits from taking the, you know, the, what is the substance? I've been spraying it in my throat lately uh, from B, propolis, is it called? You know, that has some antibacterial qualities, evidently. I mean, there's endless things. A good friend of mine uh, in the community gave me a, a chunk of chaga, which comes off of a birch tree about 20 feet up. It's a fungus that is evidently, I, I read, has more antioxidants than any other substance on the planet. And you make a tea out of it and you can get tinctures from it too. But so, you know, and this is what gets our attention. You know, it's sort of like, I'll fix myself this way, I'll fix myself that way, I'll do this, I'll do that. And we get swept away because there's no end to it. And it's not to say that those things about changing our diet or doing more exercise or you know, cultivating this or abandoning that aren't useful. But when we hear something like, you know what, there is this way, and it's primarily based on the cultivation and, and the development of present moment awareness. Until that habit, that new habit to be present, to sustain present moment awareness, becomes the dominant habit, dominant force in the mind. The way that Joseph Goldstein, uh, one of my important teachers, talks about this is, uh, some of you have heard me say this, you know, initially it's like the bowl is upside down and our practice is we find the marble and we put it on the top of the upside down bowl. And this is a perfectly round bowl like the bell is, you know. And you put the marble here and it immediately rolls off and falls under a table and you take a couple of minutes, you track it down and you put the marble back on the underside of the bowl and it immediately rolls off and you track it down, you get it and you bring it back. That's a nice simile for our practice, isn't it? It's a lot of that sort of finding the present moment. You know, we're in that space of mental proliferation and eventually we find ourselves, oh, this is how it is. It's like this, it feels like this. We're back and then we're immediately gone. We roll right off into the dusty corners of our mind. And then we find our way back and then we're off. And then eventually, Joseph simile, you know, the bowl goes this way and we put the marble there. Now, when the bowl gets knocked around, the marble moves. But its tendency, its habit now is to naturally reestablish the center. Oh, it's like this now. It's just this experience being known. And that's why we do all this seemingly, well, not seemingly, all this difficult work 
of practice. We're cultivating a lifestyle, uh, the new primary habit of mind that recognizes because of habit, oh, it's like this. This is an experience being known. And it's really important to see that as a wisdom awareness because it requires the wisdom to understand that any moment, this moment, any moment, is an experience being known. It's profoundly characterized by a experience that's being known. And that insight, that understanding, strips away so much ignorance where the mind projects, imagines, the present moment is more than what it is. It's simply something being known, moment by moment. So when we're working, for example, with an exclusive meditation object, being aware of the breath coming in, being aware of the breath going out, or being aware of the whole body, being aware of hearing, being aware of walking. So whatever meditation anchor we might be training with to support the connecting and sustaining the present moment awareness, that's what we're doing. Breathing in is being known. It's an experience being known here and now. Being known, being known, being known. Breathing out is being known, being known, being known, being known. Thinking is being known. Feeling is being felt. Thinking is being known. Breathing in is being known, being known, being known. And in doing that, insight grows. We stabilize that. Insight follows. Insight, deepening of wisdom, inspires more energy. More energy gets applied to the preventing, abandoning, developing, and maintaining. It's doing the work of purifying, developing the mind. One of the simplest, most famous statements from the Buddha, just the way he sums up all the Buddhist teachings, not this, just this Buddha, all the Buddhist teachings, avoid what is unskillful, cultivate what is skillful, and develop the mind, develop the heart. So we have to make some hard choices sometimes. Like when we say it's unskillful, we're just saying like watching TV, being desirous of food, of entertainments. Not that those things are bad, but to build a life around that, that's not helpful. That's not skillful. So I'm abandoning not that I'm never going to eat nice food or never watch a fun show. I'm abandoning the ignorant idea that this leads to happiness. I still might watch a show, but I'm working on abandoning the wrong idea that it matters in the end. Maybe some entertainments can be a useful um, refreshment, like a way of resting. But that's for each of us to check out. Is it helpful? We can ch- we'll find out if it's helpful. It's like I notice every once in a while when there is some entertainment, some show that I find exceptionally well written and 
and wholesome and entertaining, at the end, I feel hungry for more of it. That's what's left over in my heart. I want more entertainment like this. You know, who's going to make the next show that's worth watching? And how many bad shows do I have to watch before I stumble upon the next good show? Right? Same with food. Same with all these things. So what eventually, slowly, at least in my case, happens is that more and more dispassion arises around these sense experiences. Hating them, being afraid of them, doesn't help. But thinking that there's still an answer there also doesn't help. And the heart gravitates towards what seems to really be in my own best interest and all of our best interests, which is to wake up, to learn to see, to feel what we're not seeing and feeling. So we have to avoid, we have to abandon what's not skillful, and we have to cultivate what's skillful. We're cultivating the skillful means, the qualities of the mind that support this balanced, kind, non-judging, fearless, fierce in moments awareness that is just willing to feel and see the way it is. And skillful action comes out of that. Like a lot of times we want to know what to do to deal with injustice in our society or what to do to make my relationship with my partner healthier, what to do with my teenage um, child, you know, how to be a skillful parent. But I don't know about you, but life doesn't really give us that kind of certainty, how to be a parent, how to be a partner, how to be a good citizen when there's so much injustice. But what we can do is we can cultivate the kind of sensitivity and humility and presence that will find ourselves moving more and more in a direction where our actions, our speech, our thoughts contribute to the healing, contribute to non-harming, as opposed to making things worse. And, and one more thing about wisdom, you know, effort, the effort to be wise, the effort to deep, deepen understanding, a lot of times, you know, just the way our mind has been formed, the way we conceive of things, we think of wisdom or understanding or knowledge as a possession, like, oh yeah, I'm wise, and as if there's a me, a self, that has this product, wisdom, like my gold in my little vault, and it's mine, you know, and no one can take it, I've got, this is my wisdom. But the, the way the Buddha says this is, when one practices, wisdom grows, and when we do not practice, wisdom wanes. Because uh, the latent tendencies of our mind are going to reassert themselves. And if there aren't any <clears throat> latent tendencies, then our practice is done. <laughs> but until there are no latent tendencies, we have to keep the practice going. And this is like one of the yeah, one of the heartbreaking things we see in our own practice and maybe sometimes see in other people's practice where they've really gained some wisdom and then the person continues on in their life or we continue on in our life 
in a sense, banking on some insight we had 10, 15, 20 years ago. And it gets a little pathetic after a while, you know, that we're kind of drawing on some faint memory that isn't really real anymore in the moment. And it's like the attachment to that understanding we once imagined having is, uh, yeah, there's a kind of desperation and uh, stinkiness to that. So the wisdom, if it's real, it has to be fresh. So I know, I notice this a lot in my own heart, you know, after some big insights, the mind sort of glomming on to the past. Oh yeah, back then when I climbed Mount Everest or whatever, you know, rode my bike across the country or did this amazing thing, as opposed to, well, what if that is true here and now? How might that be true here and now? How is that actually alive here and now? How can it be renewed here and now? I mean, we wouldn't do this around kindness and compassion. I remember when I was six years old and I did this to my little brother, you know, and somehow that, um, yeah, that's sort of some, it's, the question is like, what does kindness, kindness look like now? How am I being kind to myself and others now? Or not so? So I'll just uh, end with uh, one more piece here. Let me just find it before we break into small groups. This is from the Dhammapada. And I was, as I read this, I was reminded of Thich Nhat Hanh's words, this wonderful Vietnamese Buddhist monk who's been teaching in the West for many decades now and is back at home in Vietnam late in his life. He said, our only enemy is forgetfulness. And this is the second chapter in the Dhammapada and it kind of speaks to this point here. And this is just, the Dhammapada is a collection of verses from early Buddhism, some from the Buddha and some from some of the other wise people around the time of the Buddha. Vigilance is the path to the deathless. Negligence is the path to death. The vigilant do not die. The negligent are as if already dead, like autopilot. And it goes on, knowing this distinction Vigilant sages rejoice in vigilance, delighting in the field of the wise ones, absorbed in meditation, persevering, always steadfast, the wise touch Nibbana, the ultimate rest from toil. Glory gl grows for a person who is energetic and mindful, pure and considerate in action, restrained and vigilant, and who lives the Dhamma, lives in alignment with the way it is. And it continues, through effort, vigilance, restraint, the wise person can become an island no floods will overwhelm. Unwise, foolish people give themselves over to negligence. The wise protect vigilance as the greatest treasure. Vigilance is a nice word. It means kind of to illuminate, right? Vigil is to bring light. So 
to illuminate what? To illuminate the way it is, to illuminate the present moment. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.